Good morning, and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Before we begin our worship service, we just want to begin with a few announcements. We actually have a lot of announcements in your bulletin. Uh, one that we don't have in there is this is fifth Sunday supper or lunch after church. We'll meet in the Family Life Building uh, to have a great lunch, and of course you're all invited to that. Um, also, I want to make a note that the Ladies Weekly Bible Study that says in the bulletin will meet on November the 6th is actually meeting on October the 30th, and that will be the last uh, of the year. Another note, our Operation Christmas Child boxes, I uh, hope this becomes a tradition that we can continue for years to come. If you walk out the main entrance on this side or the side entrance going to the Family Life Building, there are some empty boxes there, red and green, can't miss them. You can take one with you. The instructions are in the box for what you're to do with them. There's also some instructions in the bulletin. And if you have any questions, you can email Amber. Her contact information uh, is in the bulletin. Also want to note that we'll resume our midweek uh, service, midweek dinner and Bible study this coming Wednesday. We had our fall festival this past week, so we will resume with that. Two other things. Just wanted to make note, we've been working on revamping the church's website. And... Uh, if you need a Sunday bulletin ahead of time, we're now posting your bulletins on the website under the bulletins heading each week on Friday afternoons. So if you ever need one of those ahead of time or if you, miss, if you don't get an email about it, you can always check there. And then finally, uh, in the Reformed world, the Sunday before or on October 31st is considered Reformation Sunday because on October 31st of what year? Somebody give me. Thank you. 1517. Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, which many consider to be the beginning of the Reformation. So we'll have uh, our, two, our first two hymns, number one being, I greet thee, who my sure redeemer art. As his, as we don't know this for 100% certain, but it's generally believed that John Calvin actually wrote that hymn. It first appeared in Switzerland around the time that he was there. Uh, one of the reformers, of course. And then our second hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, of course, was written by Martin Luther, the, the father of the Reformation. So in our hymns, in the, in the sermon, we will remember our heritage as Reformed Christians and honor Reformation Day. Uh, that's all I have by way of announcements. With that, let's take a few moments and prepare our hearts to worship the living and true God, both in word and in sacrament.
since it is Reformation Sunday, you might be wondering what's so great about the Reformation? Why should we care? One great thing about the Reformation is that you get to hear God's call to you to worship him in your own language, in English. You actually can understand the service that you are in, which is not something many people could say uh, 500 years ago. And so we are grateful to God for the men and women who have brought us um, such a great heritage, such a faith that we can celebrate um, such a time in which we can worship in our own language, so many other blessings that we can think about and learn about. So we are grateful for the Reformation. But would you please stand for our call to worship from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. This is God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Would you please pray with me as we begin our worship service? God, we are so grateful for the work, for your work throughout all of the years. We are here um, sitting on the blessings that you have brought us, many of us unknowingly, of, of the work that you have done through men and women over the years in your church. So God, we are grateful to be worshiping you this morning in our own language, uh, in safety, in comfort, So God, as we do this, would you please remind us of your great glory, of your Son, Jesus, of the Holy Spirit who is here with us, who is giving us strength to worship you even now. So Holy Spirit, we pray, would you lead us in worship this morning? Give us hearts that are full of thanksgiving and joy for the opportunity to worship you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing our first hymn together, which is hymn 168, I Greet Thee, Who My Sure Redeemer Art, 168.
may be seated. Back in the time of Martin Luther's day before the Reformation was really kicking off, uh, there was a church in which uh, one of the priests or pastors, you could say, was advertising the ability to pay for indulgences so that you could forgive the sins of not only just yourself, but for your loved ones who have passed beforehand. So a carts would be brought into the town and people would bring all of their money to forgive their sins. And by God's grace, that heretical and unhelpful and even evil teaching has been, uh, the light of the gospel has been shown on it. So now when we come to God, we come to God simply by faith and we have the assurance by God's word itself that we are forgiven our sins. So when we come and confess our sins together, um, we can be free. We can be joyful. We can be all of these things as God's children. So in your bulletin, you'll see the corporate confession of sin. And as we pray this together, you can pray with a thankful heart that we can come to God just as we are by faith alone, by grace alone. So let's pray this prayer together. Father, though you should guide us, we inform ourselves. Though you should rule us, we control ourselves. Though you should fulfill us, we console ourselves. We think your truth too high, your will too hard, your power too remote, your love too free, but they are not. And without them, we are of all people most miserable. Now heal our confused minds with your word. Heal our divided wills with your law. Heal our troubled consciences with your love. Heal our anxious hearts with your presence, all for the sake of your Son, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Let's take a few moments now to go before God silently, individually, in prayer, uh, with the expectation that he hears us, that he will forgive us, so you confess your sins, pray with God about whatever needs you have. Let's go to God in prayer now. God, you are rich in mercy, and you love us, which is why you forgive us of all our sins. And you tell us in your word, in Ephesians chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God, this is the truth in which we walk. Would you give us great assurance of your salvation that you have purchased for us through the blood of Christ, applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God, as we do this, we want to remember and pray for your people. We pray for Keith Cravens as he's in the hospital. We pray for great healing and wisdom for the doctors, for strength in the medication. God, would you give answers and healing, we pray. Lord, we are so grateful also for the birth of Elizabeth Josephine Kinney. Would you give her uh, great growth? Would you protect her in these early days and hours? Would you heal Liz quickly? Uh, Would you be with their family as they experience the joy of new life? God, we are thankful for this morning, for this time of worship. Would you give us thankful hearts as we continue singing your praises and remembering the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Please pray with me. God, we do not give because we expect blessing. Uh, We give because we have been blessed. And so we give out of hearts that have been changed by your grace, by your love and compassion. God, you have freed us to be your people, to spread the good news, to serve others. Would you use these tithes and offerings for these means so that your word would be spread among the world, that Louisville would know who you are and your love for them. God, help us to be people who would be part of this work. We thank you for this opportunity to give, and we dedicate it to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll sing our next hymn, which is hymn 92, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let's sing hymn 92.
I would invite you to turn with me now to Genesis chapter 44. We're fast forwarding near the end of the book of Genesis this week, specifically uh, because I wanted to preach a sermon related to Reformation Sunday. We're going to be looking uh, at the story of Joseph and his brothers, or at least a part of that story. Genesis 44, beginning in verse 30. Before I read it, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your matchless, amazing grace that you lavish upon us. And in the words of John Calvin and his personal motto, we offer up our hearts promptly and sincerely to you and pray now that you would enlighten them, that we might hear and receive and be changed by your holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 44, beginning in verse 30 through 45, verse 5. Hear God's word. This is Judah speaking to his brother Joseph. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And this ends the reading of God's word. There were many emphases during the Reformation. Uh, The one that I want to explore this morning is the sovereignty of God. It's the idea... A mighty fortress is our God, calls God Lord Sabaoth. It means the Lord of hosts. He's the God who commands legions upon legions of angels. He's all-powerful. He's not controllable. He can't be manipulated. Nothing catches him by surprise, and nothing happens outside of his control. 
The problem about believing in God's sovereignty is that people tend to use it as a catch-all. It's like a rubber stamp. Something bad happens and you say, well, God is sovereign. God is in control. But the opposite problem is if, if you don't believe in God's sovereignty, then you think that everything's happening by chance. Everything is happening on a whim. And the story of Joseph will not allow for either of these options expressed exactly in that way. Joseph had to really wrestle hard with the sovereignty of God because he faced very difficult circumstances in his life. And what I want us to see from this passage is that if you wrestle with the sovereignty of God, it will have a profound impact on your life. Uh, it will be challenging, and it will affect the way that you view other folks, even those who've wronged you. So I want to explore that, those ideas under three points. Joseph's words, Joseph's tears, and Joseph's transformation. So number one, Joseph's words. We didn't read the entire story of Joseph. Much of the book of Genesis is devoted to the life of him and his brothers. But if you go back and read, you'll see that he was hated by his 11 brothers, that they conspired to kill him. And instead of killing him, they gave him the bargain of, well, instead we'll just sell you into slavery. And they, they sold him over to Ishmaelites who brought him to Egypt. And he was put in bondage there. Uh, when he got free from his bondage and became a servant to Potiphar, he was framed for a crime that he didn't commit and therefore falsely imprisoned. Uh, spent who knows how much time in jail. And you can only imagine during all those years as a slave and imprisoned, he's got a lot of questions. Where is God in all of this? How could my brothers possibly do this to me? He has to feel forsaken and abandoned. But if you look at the history of the Bible and of God's people, this is not uncommon. This is the common experience of God's people. We will all go through times in our lives where we feel forsaken and abandoned and are left asking, where is God in the midst of all of this and why is he allowing it to happen? Why am I in prison? Why am I in the dungeon? Since it's Reformation Day, I wanted to focus on one particular uh, preacher who went through great trials in his lives, and that man was John Knox. John Knox was the father of the Reformation in Scotland during the 16th century. Uh, he, became, he was a Catholic priest who left the Roman Catholic Church in order to become a minister, a Protestant minister, a Reformed minister, and he had a tumultuous relationship with his queen in Scotland, Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, that read about it. It's, it's very interesting. They called her Bloody Mary. He was such a powerful minister of Christ, such a powerful preacher. Mary, Queen of Scots said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Knox had a famous prayer. He said to God, give me Scotland or I die. And that was his mission. And ultimately, God did give him Scotland. That's part of why we're here as Presbyterians, because of the Scottish church. But Knox had to go through immense pain to get there. In 1559, when he returned to Scotland from Geneva, Switzerland, he wrote back to the Genevan church, asking them if they would send him donations, if they would send him money, so that he could buy a faster horse. Because Mary's persecution was breathing down his neck. And in 1547, prior to that, Knox had a true Joseph moment. 
He was serving as a chaplain for the Scottish forces at St. Andrew's Castle when it was attacked by the army of Catholic France. Knox was captured and made a galley slave. And for 19 months, he suffered in that galley, literally chained to his oars. Could only get up when uh, those who had captured him allowed it. And you can imagine a man like that who became the father of the Scottish Reformation, 19 months as a slave in, a galley, in the galley of a ship, got to be asking, where is God in all this? What about the Reformation? But back to Joseph for a moment. Even though he faces, like Knox and like so many others, enormous hardships, we don't see him questioning God in the text. We see him learning the language of God's sovereignty. Verse 4 in chapter 45. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because, key phrase, you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Notice the key words there. You and God. Joseph says to his brothers, you sold me into Egypt, but God sent me into Egypt. When you were sinning, God was sending. When you were selling me out, God was sending me out. When I was suffering, God was sending. Two key points there. God was never not in control. But at the same time, Joseph's, Joseph's brothers were absolutely responsible for their actions. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility aren't mutually exclusive. They go together, and the Bible won't have it any other way. God is all-powerful. Nothing happens outside of God's decree, yet at the same time, we are not simply robots. We are not simply puppets like Pinocchio before he becomes a real boy. We're responsible for our actions. And this can be a very hard idea to wrestle with. It's almost like learning a new language. And the problem with learning a new language is that we can be content to be shallow, content to just know the basics, content to repeat cliches and formulas. Well, God is sovereign, therefore we have no responsibility. Or those on the opposite end of the spectrum. Well, obviously we're in control of our lives and God has nothing to do with it. No, the language of God's sovereignty and the words of Joseph show us God is in control, we are responsible. I said it's like learning a new language almost. Well, David Sedaris tells a story about the difficulty of learning a new language. He was spending a good deal of time in France, and so he decided he wanted to learn French. And so he attends a class weekly with a bunch of other uh, Americans and other nationalities who are trying to learn French. They're in Paris. And one day the teacher asked the class to use French to explain what Easter is. And he goes on and on about how difficult it was to explain such a difficult concept. And this is some of his narrative. He said, one student answered, his English translation, it is a party for the little boy of God who call himself Jesus. Another said, he call himself Jesus, and then he be die one day on two morsels of lumber. The rest of the class jumped in, offering bits of information that would have given the Pope an aneurysm. He die one day... And then he'd go above my head to live with your father. 
he weared the long hair. And after he died, the first day, he come back here for to say hello to the peoples. He nice the Jesus. He makes the good things. And on the Easter, we be sad because somebody makes him dead. And this is Sedaris' commentary. He says, part of the problem had to do with grammar. Simple nouns, such as cross and resurrection, were beyond our grasp. Let alone such complicated, reflexive phrases as to give of yourself your only begotten son. See, what we tend to do with complex phrases is we simplify to the point that they become nonsensical. He continues, faced with the challenge of explaining the cornerstone of Christianity, we did what any self-respecting group of people might do. We talked about food instead. Easter is a party for to eat of the lamb, a student said. One too may eat of the chocolate. And who brings the chocolate, the teacher said. I knew the word, so I raised my hand saying, the rabbit of Easter, he bring the chocolate. This is the point. Learning a new language is hard. And part of what the Reformation was about was re-exploring and relearning this new language of God's sovereignty. And in that language, we never want to communicate that we're robots or puppets, but we also don't want to talk about God as if he isn't intimately involved in our lives or as if he hasn't decreed everything that's happened. And we don't want God's sovereignty to be a cliche that we try to use to dismiss the difficulties that we're going through. We don't want to use God's sovereignty in a sterile way where it becomes some item of cold comfort, ultimately meaningless. Instead, we want to use it in a genuine way that provides hope and encouragement. You sent me to Egypt, Joseph says, but God sent me to Egypt to save lives. Now, as we wrestle with this idea, we also want to take note that this is not an easy thing to grasp. This, and this is why I want us to look at point two, Joseph's tears. God's sovereignty isn't an easy subject to deal with. It's, sometimes, it's something that has to be wrestled with and often wrestled with through tears. It's not something we just talk about like lightly. Joseph wept in our text. Verse 1 of chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph is wailing. He's wailing. Joseph had so seriously wrestled with his life. He didn't just stamp everything with God as sovereign. Therefore, get over it. He had wrestled with what his brothers had done to him. He had wrestled with the fact that he hadn't seen his father in years. He'd wrestled with the fact that he'd been in prison. He'd wrestled with the good things that happened to him as well. And he wrestled with God's role in all of this. And in this moment, he wept over it. And he wept loudly. You can weep too. The sovereignty of God doesn't prevent weeping. It actually allows weeping. One of the Psalms says God keeps track of every one of our tears as if they were in a bottle. I mentioned John Knox earlier. You know, he was a weeper. He cried a lot. Uh, in Presbyterian churches, folks like that tend to get made fun of. You know, we're the frozen chosen. We're not the emotional ones. But I found an article by Abby Wills, written a few years ago, entitled, John Knox Wept. She was doing research on him in Scotland, 
And these, these are a few things she wrote. She said, Knox didn't just tear up on the odd occasion. Knox was a blubbery, embarrassing, tears-down-his-cheeks-in-public type of crier. Now, if you see, look up a picture of John Knox sometimes. He is the staunchest, most devout-looking person you would ever see. The guy whose prayers Bloody Mary feared more than all the armies of Europe. And she's telling us he was a blubbering crier. She says, when his youngest son was baptized in Geneva, he stood in front of the church of Protestant farmers and cried big blobs of tears. In the days between meeting with the Scottish nobles and haranguing Mary, Queen of Scots, Knox would sit in a small dark room off of the Queen's Mile in Edinburgh and mourn the death of his wife. He patiently wrote letter after letter to a woman who had lost her husband, sharing a message of kindness that she was not alone. And I imagine his eyes welling as he wrote to his congregation, asking them to remember him and pray while he was enslaved in a French galley ship. He died nearly destitute in Edinburgh, unsure whether he had done anything good or worthwhile, unaware that he would become a father of Protestant Christianity. See, the fact that God is in control does not mean that we always know what he's up to. And it doesn't mean that we won't need to weep as we wrestle with exactly what he's doing in our lives. It doesn't mean we'll all have it all figured out, and sometimes we'll just have to weep. You have to have a Joseph moment. Joseph wept. Jesus wept. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes, was asked near the end of his life what his biggest regret was in the ministry. And he said he wished he would have wept more over the souls of lost people in particular. So if the language of God's sovereignty is making you less emotional or hardening your emotions, you're not learning the right language. Tears were an essential part of Joseph wrestling with God's sovereignty. And they're part of what led to Joseph's transformation. And they can be a part of what leads to our transformation. So here's number three. Joseph's transformation. So we need to see what opened up Joseph's emotions toward his brothers. He had every reason to harden himself against them. They had done him very, very wrong. He had every reason to blame them and leave God out of the question, put all the responsibility on their shoulders. But something happened that softened him emotionally. So in our story, we didn't read the full context, but Joseph has framed his youngest brother, Benjamin, who is the son of Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, also the, the mother, Rachel is, of Joseph. He's framed Benjamin. He's accused him of, of, taking a, of stealing a silver cup. and He's going to keep him there in Egypt with him as a, as a servant or as a prisoner as his other brothers go back into the land to their father Jacob. But in this moment, Judah, one of Joseph's brothers, and Judah's the bad guy. You have to understand that. He's the one who had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah steps up. Judah does something completely surprising here. So back to 44 verse 30 in our passage. Judah says, As soon as I come to your servant, my father, that's Jacob, and the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. 
for your servant, again, Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy, Benjamin, to my father, Jacob, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is the dramatic turn of the entire book of Genesis. Judah, this villain who is responsible for all of Joseph's hardships in some sense, is now willing to take the place of this little boy Benjamin as a substitute. My life for his. Don't put him in prison. Put me in prison. Judah is willing to become a slave, essentially, so that his father, Jacob, won't have to suffer the loss of Rachel's second son. This is what melt Joseph's heart toward his brothers. He saw someone willing to take the place of another, and this made him say, surely God has a purpose in all of this. And so in a strange way, Judah is the hero of this entire story because he is pointing us to his greater son, who would be known as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in this story is meant to point us to Christ, from Judah's willingness to become a substitute to the life story of Joseph. Only one, the only true way that we can know at the end of the day, as we wrestle with God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, the only way we can know that this is working for good, that God has a good purpose in every evil, is that God himself took on flesh and was willing to be a substitute, to come, to be imprisoned, falsely imprisoned, to suffer and to die for us. He was willing to take our place to become a prisoner so that we could be free, to taste death so that we could have eternal life. He didn't ask for a faster horse like John Knox so that he could get away. He didn't say, give me Scotland or I die. He said, give me Scotland and I will die for them. And see, I say this is essential to understanding God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, to wrestling with the sovereignty of God. Because if you come to me and you say, Heath, I'm going through struggles. I'm beginning to question God. This is more than I can bear. This is more than I can handle. He clearly, either if he is involved in this, he's being terrible to me. Or if he isn't involved in this, then I'm left on my own. If you say, what can, what can I do with this? Here's what I'm going to say to you. If you look at God as simply Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, this all-powerful, almighty being who's pulling all the strings of history and he's distant and he's far off, then I say, I understand you're questioning him. I understand your doubts. I would question that God too. But if you look at God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, falsely imprisoned for you, beaten for you, hanging on a cross, bloody, whipped, nail-pierced for you. If you look him in those eyes, I don't think you'll ever say, why God? Because you'll understand that this God who is sovereign has also come into history to be our Savior. And as Tim Keller liked to say over and over again, I don't know why you're going through what you may be going through. 
But because of Jesus, I can say it's not because God doesn't love you. God proves his love for you. And that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And when you see that, it changes everything. While you were sinning, God was sending his son to the cross for you. While you were selling him out, God was sending him out for your salvation. While Christ was suffering, God was sending him to suffer for you. When you see that, it's a whole new world. John Knox's story about being a galley slave on this French ship for 19 months, in his Joseph moment, you know what happened on that galley slave? Because his captors were French, in order to communicate, Knox had to learn French. And you know what happened because he learned French? He was able to go to Switzerland where there was a French pastor named John Calvin. And Knox was able to go there and converse with him in French, and because of that, he became a disciple of Calvin. And he took all that he learned from Calvin back to Scotland. And that's how we get the Scottish Reformation. Because Knox was a galley slave for 19 months on a French ship. God used that time in the galley to bring about one of the largest revivals in the history of the world. And we're here as Presbyterians because of it today. He was a galley slave on a French ship. Why? Because he needed to learn a new language. And the next time things are hard and you're wrestling with questions like, where is God in all of this? What on earth is he doing? Because of Jesus Christ, you can say to yourself, maybe I need to learn a new language. Maybe God is teaching me a new language. Let us pray. Father, we wrestle with things that are too marvelous for us. Yet you reveal these things in your holy word. And so we wrestle and we cling and we trust and we hope that because of what Jesus has done for us, at the end of this life, whatever trials and tribulations we face, that you are teaching us the language of heaven. And that we're going to stand before our risen Savior with the language of praise saying hallelujah to the Lamb who reigns forever and ever. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Before we come to the Lord's table, let's stand and sing the first two stanzas of hymn number 257, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted.
You may be seated. So we come now to the Lord's table for the Lord's people. The Reformers like to say that Jesus Christ speaks to us through His Word, but He also speaks to us through pictures, through visible means. He not only wants us to hear the Lord Jesus Christ, but to taste and see that the Lord Jesus Christ is good. And that's what we experience in this bread and this cup. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would ask that you let these elements pass as they go through the pews uh, because this is a meal for believers. Uh, but we would encourage you, implore you to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. And then profess that faith, be baptized, and come back to this table at a future date. For those of you who are believers, this is not... First Presbyterian Church's table and meal. This is not my meal as a minister. This is the Lord's Supper. And so all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, through faith in Him, are invited to this meal to partake on the body and blood of Christ. Before we partake, let us pray. Father, thank You for this meal in which we taste and see that the Lord is good. Where we, through eating and drinking, bring into ourselves the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, His body and His blood, through faith. Would you now consecrate and set apart these elements from a common use to a holy use, that our faith, our hearts, and our souls may be nourished upon the gospel of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now hear the words of institution. We will hold on to the elements of bread until all have been served and then we will eat together. On the night in which our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
body of Christ for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God proves his love in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. body of Christ for you. Take and eat. In like manner, after the supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink from it, all of you.
without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ poured out for you. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ poured out for you. The new covenant in Christ's blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Drink from it. Let us pray. Father, we thank on this Lord's Day of the Lord Jesus Christ who is stricken, smitten, and afflicted, who died on the tree so that we might have hope, and not only hope, but assurance of eternal life with you forever through his sacrifice and through his shed blood. We give you thanks for this meal that you've privileged us to take part of and ask that as we begin this new week, you would nourish us spiritually and strengthen us that if we indeed face Joseph moments, yet still, we will learn the language of your sovereignty and your love and the hope of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together now and sing stanzas three and four of hymn number 257. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Again, we, will, we invite you uh, to lunch in the Family Life Building after we dismiss. Uh, in light of that, let me pray and ask God's blessing upon our meal. Father, thank you for the opportunity uh, to fellowship together after this service. Lord, you have fed us spiritually, and we're thankful you feed us physically 
as well. So would you bless the food that we partake of to the nourishment of our bodies and our fellowship to your glory. Thank you for this church, and thank you for the many great opportunities of fellowship that you grant us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now as we leave, receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all as we continue this, our short earthly pilgrimage. Amen.